0: Good afternoon, it's good to uh, be with you all, it's a joy every time that we get to come here and worship together in God's house, amen, amen. and just to uh, get you guys started off a little bit, if uh, you've never followed me before, one of the things I like to do is to be able to provide notes, so you probably would figured this out, I don't know if you were at the Super Bowl watching it, but there's this one commercial, it, just, it was just a QR code. So I'm sure everybody's like, what is that? What is that? So I'm kind of hoping you could do that right now. So go ahead and and download your notes here. Because, you know, this is the electronic age. We want you guys all connected and uh, set up to kind of follow along. Um, So as you've all got smartphones, go ahead and get that. If you can't download it, then just uh, talk to me later. So uh, today's message is centered around the story of Jesus. And he was washing the feet of his disciples. So many of you are very familiar with this story. But before we read John chapter 13, verses 1 through 17 together, I'd like for you to know a few things. Chapters 13 through 17 of John's gospel covers what's mostly commonly known as basically Jesus' private ministry with his disciples. And I love it because... He kicks off his teaching by moving into this lowly position of a foot washer. And he begins his private teaching in a very dramatic fashion. Basically coming before his disciples in humility and just giving this vivid, portrayal of humility. He'll, he'll talk about it, but then now he's actually showing something that is beyond their uh, almost kind of like, wait, what's, what's going on here? And it's, it's, it's like a shock and awe that some people might want to utilize and go through. So one of the things I wanted to talk about is kind of going through this very popular passage because there were several things that I was able to discover as I went through. Thanks. <laughs> um, so, interestingly, I'm going to try to use this, and I don't know if it will work or not, so let's see how it goes. Nope? Yes? Maybe? Hey. Okay, hopefully. <laughs> we'll see how this goes, alright? So, um, basically, what I also wanted to do was kind of um, read something that you might have been talking about this morning or this afternoon. It said, how wonderful, how beautiful, name above every name exalted high. How wonderful, how beautiful, Jesus your name, name above every name, Jesus. Sound familiar? I would hope so. You just sang it. You might be like me though. I, I, might, I might actually go through the words and, and I'll sing it, but then sometimes it, it doesn't always hit me. And so oftentimes I'll even forget what, what the words are of the song. And I don't know about you, but I've been diagnosed with age, so it's basically something in which my memory's starting to go. Uh, but I have to remember this because um, it's, wow, how, how wonderful, how beautiful, name above every name, exalted high. And as we're going through the story today, I want you to journey with me and discover a little bit more about why he is wonderful, why he is beautiful, why his name should be exalted high above every other name. And a big part of that is because he chose to love. And so in this first major section of the Gospel of John, Jesus would usually perform a miracle, and then he'd actually explain the significance. But in this section, what he did was, he already explained the significance of his death and then went to the cross for, uh, to die for our sins and raised from the dead. So how many of you are Star Wars fans? Raise your hand. All right. So think of it this way. Uh, you've already watched episodes 4, 5, and 6. You know that Jesus is going to die for us on the cross. But then now you're going to go back to episodes 1, 2, and 3 and then see what leads up to the cross. And this is a major turning point uh, during this time because it was the time of the Passover. And so now this is pretty much going to be the quote-unquote Last Supper that his disciples are going to go through. And it was Last Supper not just for him here on earth, but it was essentially the Last Supper because now he was taking God's people from this point of remembering their redemption out of Egypt into a new kind of redemption from sin itself and into eternity. And that's the beautiful thing about this story. So please stand with me and follow along closely as I read our passage from John chapter 13, verses 1 through 17. So I want you to take in every word of this passage, all right? So listen to the story. It was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the four had No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then, Lord, Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Jesus answered, those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean. You will be blessed if you do them. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for the example of servanthood that Christ showed us and for the lessons of submission, grace, and obedience that he gave to Peter. Open our hearts to your word. Renew our minds with your truth. And refresh our spirits with your power. We pray this in the holy and matchless name of our teacher and Lord, Jesus Christ. Amen. Please be seated. Now, I want to ask you two questions for you to answer for yourselves before we get started. And I, as I ask each one, uh, try not to process the answer. I just want you to just say, okay, this is the first thing that I am thinking of. And if it helps you, go ahead and just write down a few words in your notes. Then we'll come back to these questions again later. Okay. Ready? First question. How many of Jesus' disciples were present when he washed their feet? It's easy. Pick a number, 1 to 12. Got it? All right. Write it down. And that's another one. (laughs) Next question is, how would I personally define true love? That's a little bit deeper. But just immediately... Take one sentence, maybe jot down a few words. How would I define true love? And you should already have this picture in your mind of, of what true love is, okay? Got it? Good. All right. Let's uh, try this one now. You know, when I first moved to Dallas from the San Francisco Bay area, I was a young 20 something corporate executive, just going up the ladder really fast. Um, ended up starting off as an engineer, became a senior engineer, uh, directed some major efforts of fiber optics. And next thing I know, I was building fiber optic networks in California, then from California to Texas. And then I was responsible for all the United States. And then we handled these submarine cables that went from the continental US to Europe and Asia. And and I, w- I was just wow, there I was. Uh, And then my mentors wanted me to move to Dallas, Texas. And I grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area. The first time I had ever gone to a meeting in Dallas, Texas, I thought, wow, this place is flat and it is hot. And oh my goodness, I've never had allergies until I came here. So um, I use it as an excuse now so I don't have to mow my lawn, but, you know, it's a whole other story. Uh, But here's the thing. When I first came out here, it was really important for me because as a young 20-something, I said, you know, um, I miss my friends, and and I really want to develop relationships. And so growing up in church, the first thing I said, okay, let me go find a church here. And I did not know what a megachurch was until I came into Texas, I said, what in the world? How do you pastor thousands of people in one place? Uh, Thankfully, I actually had a lot of friends uh, and colleagues that were in telecommunications. And so obviously, telecoms all over the world, and I had all of these friends that I could interact with. And so there were a lot of us young 20-somethings that moved to Dallas because back in the 90s, in Richardson, down that 75 area, there used to be something called Telecom Corridor, Anybody ever remember that? Maybe some of you weren't born yet. But hey, uh, so there used to be something called Telecom Corridor. It was Texas's version of the Silicon Valley. And it was all about telecommunications. And we were basically booming back in those days. And it was a big deal for us to, to come out here and for me to actually uh, move out here. But I asked myself, when I first came out and, and had meetings here, I said, why would anyone want to live in this godforsaken land? And you know what God said? Um, He said, maybe you don't want to, but I got plans for you. And I ended up coming out here because my mentors wanted me to be out here. They said, hey, if you're going to be the next VP of engineering for AT&T, you need to handle, and all of a sudden, they gave me a list of all of these things that I needed to learn while I was here in Texas. But suffice to say, relationships were important to me. That's why I enjoy things like what Barna comes up with, And talking about things like, well, what builds resilient disciples? Meaningful relationships. So let me explain this chart a little bit to you. Because they conducted a research uh, with 18 to 29-year-olds who grew up as Christian. And they identified four key groups. They were the prodigals, the nomads, the habitual churchgoers, and the resilient disciples. I'll leave it up to you to figure out which one you are. But in defining who these people are, they basically said that the prodigals or even ex-Christians, they don't identify themselves as Christian despite having attended a Protestant or Catholic church as a child or teen or having considered themselves to be Christian at at some time. Now, the nomads are pretty much going to be the ones that are unchurched. And they identify themselves as Christian, but they have not attended church during the past month. And the vast majority of nomads haven't been involved with the faith community for six months or more. Habitual churchgoers, on the other hand, describe themselves as Christian, and they've attended church at least once in the past month, yet do not have foundational core beliefs or behaviors associated with being an intentional, engaged disciple. And number four, resilient disciples are Christians who, one, attend church at least monthly and engage with their church more than just attending worship services. Two, trust firmly in the authority of the Bible. Three, are committed to Jesus personally and affirm he was crucified and raised from the dead to conquer sin and death. And four, express desire to transform the broader society as an outcome of their faith. Now, we often see young people who grew up Christian express negative reactions to the church, and this often comes up in conversation, and this happened a lot with me and and my peers. And these are reactions that are often rooted in strong emotions, including pain, disconnection, emotional distance, skepticism, and withdrawal, and I was one of them. There are three things I'm very passionate about at church. Intercultural engagement, cross-generational interactions, and multi-ethnic worship. I love it when different ethnic groups can come together and worship. To me, it's it's a beautiful precursor and a small picture of what heaven and the new earth is going to look like. All of us coming together and worship. But it's also a beautiful picture of how God redeems people from different ethnic groups, from ta ethne, to come together and say he is our Lord and our Savior. I also love the whole intercultural engagement aspect of things. Because whether you're from an honor-shame culture or growing up here in an innocence-guilt culture or have been influenced by the power-fear culture, God redeems us from each and every one of those cultures. And I also appreciate cross-generational engagement. Because technically, I'm a first-generation Filipino-American. But I grew up here in the United States. So my formative years were spent here. So my wife and I are first-generation because we were born outside the U.S. And now we're Americans here. But our children are second-generation. For those of us who've grown up here, though, and were born outside the U.S., we're called a Gen 1.5, and Gen 1.5s exhibit characteristics of a second gen, but they're technically first generation Americans, but I'll tell you this, that's one of the hardest places to grow up in. We just had a class, uh, <laughs> Cornerstone Bible Study, and Pastor Paul said, hey, so let's, let's talk about birth order here. How many of you are first born? I'm like, yes, I'm first born. And we got around in the rest of the class. Everyone else is kind of like either a middle child or the youngest child. And I have to confess, I'm sorry, but I said that the youngest children are usually the brats because they're spoiled. Uh, But, hey, I say this because my parents made their mistakes on me first, especially as an immigrant kid. Um, And I said, I'll never make these mistakes with my kids. And here I am with three girls, and I realized, oops, I think I made some of the same mistakes. So, um, yeah, Caitlin, you actually get to be blessed because I made mistakes on your sisters first. And, yeah, she's like, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, But here's the thing, though. Relationships are important. Relationships are key. But whether it's going to be barriers of uh, socioeconomics or race... Uh, or gender, or even age. I know that in our Asian culture, uh, we highly respect our elders, uh, but sometimes that can also have its uh, negative sides of things. So that's why when I'm looking at stats like this, and we see how the resilient disciples, they firmly assert that the church is a place where I feel I belong, that's an important aspect of the church. And 82% say I am connected to a community of Christians. Those important relationships are key in seeing disciples become resilient. But let me tell you this. One of the challenges that we've seen in particularly ethnic churches around the world, and especially in the United States and in Canada, is that many of us who've grown up in First-generation ethnic churches realize that when we actually become adults, those churches weren't really ours. Why? Because they were my parents' church. That's why for me it's so important when we're talking about intercultural engagement and cross-generational interactions. We want the church to belong to Christ. Christ knowing that we belong to Christ. And so, if meaningful relationships are important, then we need to take an example of what Christ did for us. Because here's what's also interesting. Strong relational networks are important amongst this group that they showed. In comparing the resilient disciples to other young disciples who grew up as Christians, it's actually striking to see That being a a resilient disciple, which is based on a set of questions about theology and faith engagement, it actually correlates to overall relational well-being. And so we see that there's a strong desire to be loved, to be acknowledged for more than what we produce, and to be known. But how can the church do this? Let's take a closer look. At some of these other passages of Scripture. In the same chapter of John 13, Jesus continued on and he said, A new command I give you love one another as I have loved you. So you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Let me read verse 35 again. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. One of the most difficult challenges that the church has today is being known by our love for one another. There's been a lot of other things where people say, you know what, I love Jesus, but I hate the church. And I know some of you have heard that before. But that is so sad. It should not be, especially if we are to be true, resilient disciples of Jesus Christ. So in verse 35, he says, we are his disciples, and he wants everyone to know that we are his disciples. But how would the world know this? By our love for one another. Let's take a closer look at two things in today's passage. The posture of Peter and the example of Jesus. At Dallas Seminary, we have a very popular statue that I think represents well the passage that we just read. It's a statue of Jesus, obviously washing the feet of a disciple. And we most, most of us say, okay, it's Peter. So he's washing the feet of Peter. Now in the past, I actually focused a lot on the example of Jesus and the posture that he took as a servant. But I'd like to do something a little bit different with you all today. I'd like to look at the posture of Peter and observe it because there was an interesting interaction that Jesus had with him. When we looked at verses 6 through 8, I want you to realize in here we see that Peter needed to take on a posture of submission. It said, he came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, you do not realize what I am doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. So here's the point I want to make with this. In a right relationship with Christ, we must submit ourselves fully to his spiritual cleansing. Let me say that again. In a right relationship with Christ, we must submit ourselves fully to his spiritual cleansing. Now, most of the disciples, they basically remained silent as Jesus was going around washing their feet, but... Peter couldn't refrain from objecting. Um, if you know Peter, I call him passionate Pete, because if you could just imagine Jesus going around to all the disciples, and then they're just kind of like, and I, I, I can't even imagine what they're going like. What in the world is my Lord and my teacher doing? He's he's washing my my dirty feet, and who knows where it's been. Uh, and now he comes up to Peter, and Peter's like, um, "What are you doing? Why are you washing my feet?" And Jesus just straight out tells him, you know what, you have no idea what I'm doing right now, but unless you let me do this, you and I are not going to have anything further from here. And that was an important reality for him because in this posture of submission, Peter actually needed to say, okay, all right, I'm going to let you wash my feet. One of the hardest things for us, one of the barriers for us in being able to submit to Christ is pride. Pride. And I know it is very strong in the Asian-American culture. Because when it comes to pride, the focus is on ourselves. And particularly when you're talking about cultures that deal with honor shame. And you're saying, whoa, um, I don't want you touching my feet. There needs to be someone else that needs to do this. It can't be you because you're supposed to be my teacher. You're supposed to be my lord. And so the challenge here, whatever it is in your life, is taking on this posture of submission. Because this is what Passionate Pete had to go through and say, hey, let's go and say this ceremonial foot washing would actually mean a lot. Because here's what's interesting. This foot washing actually meant more to Peter and the disciples than it does to us. Because we don't fully relate to how dirty their feet got. Everybody here is pretty much going to be wearing shoes and socks. And I remember being in the Philippines uh, and me growing up here, I would interact with my cousins, and my cousins, they pretty much had the dirty feet, but their feet were a lot tougher than mine. Mine were pretty much spoiled and soft because I had the shoes and socks on. But for them, they understood a little bit more. And here was the thing. In those days, daily, they had to wash their feet. And you don't know where they were going through or where they were coming from. It was basically dirt and grime they were picking up. They were probably even going through areas of poop that pretty much had to get washed off and removed. And so for anyone who was a servant that was designated to wash the feet of guests... That was the lowliest position that you could possibly take. So for Peter to take this posture of submission at this point was very difficult because now his teacher, his Lord, is coming up to him and saying, I'm going to wash your feet. But in this next one, we see that not only did Peter take a posture of submission, he took a posture of grace. And in this posture of grace, the point I want to make is that to be in a growing relationship with Christ, we must receive grace daily from his unfathomable forgiveness. Now, Jesus is addressing two types of spiritual cleansing here. He's talking about the full cleansing that we receive uh, by putting our trust in Christ alone as our personal Savior at the very beginning. And you can't take away that once you put your trust in him. And then he's also talking about the periodic cleansing that we need from our daily walk through life. So just like what I was explaining earlier with regards to how their feet would get dirty from all the muck and the grime of all the things that are going on around them, that's what happens to us. We are not of this world, but we are in this world. And walking through life in this world, we will pick up stuff. But on a daily basis, we need to submit ourselves to Christ and say, please, wash me. Get rid of this icky stuff that I just picked up on as I was walking through this world. Because I want to continue to be your disciple. I want to continue to be your witness in all of Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and even to the ends of the earth. So, w- when you're reading this and, and you see that Peter had to take on a posture of grace, it was crazy. Here's Passionate Peter He said, Not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. He wanted a full blown bath, okay? Right in the middle. At first, he said, Don't wash my feet, but now I want a full, full bath, Jesus. And Jesus says, you know what? Those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean. And you're clean, though not all of you. And you know who he was thinking about when he said that. For he knew he was going to betray him. And that was why he said not everyone was clean. And then here's the third posture that Peter had to take. It was a posture of obedience. The point here is to be an over... To be in an overflowing relationship with Christ, we must imitate wholly His act of unconditional love. So you're going from a right relationship with Christ in which you've submitted yourselves fully to a growing relationship with Christ in which you are receiving His grace daily. And now you are in an overflowing relationship with Christ in which, you, in which you must imitate him wholly. Jesus basically had given the 12 a lesson in humble service to one another. Specifically, he took this lower role that we're talking about. And it's a lower role than what they were expecting. And it's not an easy thing, because here's what was happening. He took a lower role than theirs for their welfare, And so, Jesus' disciples, he was telling them that they should willingly and joyfully put meeting the needs of others before maintaining their own prestige. I don't know about you, but having been in telecom and going up the corporate ladder so fast, uh, I was all about that prestige. I said, Yeah, that's my track. I had mentors left and right. They were saying, You needed this kind of experience, you needed that kind of education. Here are the people you need to know. Here's what you need to do. You're getting ready. You're going to become the next VP of engineering. I said, okay. And that was all about my prestige. But I've heard this story so many times about foot washing. It didn't click until later on. And then I realized to be one of the best leaders that you can possibly be is to be one who would be willing to submit to what God wants and serve your people in ways that would encourage them in directions that they would have never thought possible. Remember those questions that I asked you? And I asked you to consider at the beginning. How many of Jesus' disciples were present when he washed their feet? Well, the answer is 12. Some people might think it's 11 because, like, why would he wash Judas's feet? Some people might think it was just one because, okay, the focus there was on Peter. But I ask this to drive the point that Jesus washed the feet of all his disciples. Why was that important? He washed all the feet of his disciples. Not only Peter, the one who would deny him three times but even the one who would sell him out and initiate this cascade of events that would eventually lead him to the cross. Think about it. He washed every disciple's feet, including the one who would sell him out. And he wants us to model this. Are you willing to wash the feet of Judas who would sell you out? Are you willing to wash the feet of Peter who denies you? Are you willing to wash the feet of Thomas who doubts you and calls you a liar? Are you willing to wash the feet of your closest friends who continuously disappoint you by falling asleep while you're going through the hardest times of your life? Are you willing to wash their feet? (sighs) But who is this strange man? This strange man whom they call teacher. And Lord, that would stoop so low as to wash the feet of people, some people that we would actually call the worst friends of the world. He is a man who at one point cried out, Abba, Father, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. Imagine as a parent having your child beg you, Daddy, you can do everything. Why do I have to go through this? Why do I have to suffer? Why do I have to go through this pain? Why do I have to be separated from you? I'm your only child. Don't make me do this. but whatever you want, I'll do it, Dad. I'll do it. Jesus had a choice. He chose to love. Now imagine what if. What if Jesus had followed his emotions and decided to not die on the cross for us? Have you ever thought about that? Did you know that he had a choice? He could have chosen to not go. He was full of these emotions, so much so that he was crying and sweating blood. He was crying out to his daddy, saying, I don't want to do this. But thank God he said, whatever you want, though, I'll do it. If there's anything that you're going to get from today, I want you to know this. Love is a decision. All right? It's not a reaction to emotion. It is a proaction to devotion. Let me say that again. It's not a reaction to emotion. It is a proaction to devotion. Let this be the theme for you as you continue to think more about what love is. Too often, I hear, and I grew up with this, and I'm guilty of this. Oh, yeah, falling in love, it's such a beautiful thing. And then you fall out of love. What is that? If you truly love a person, how would you fall out of love? Can you imagine if Jesus fell out of love for us, where we would be right now? That's why love needs to be a decision. For you husbands and wives, for you who are thinking about marriage, the covenant that you make is not between that person and you. That covenant that you make is between you and God. Thank God Jesus chose to love So now you go back to that question. How would I personally define true love? Well, look at verses 16 and 17. Because this is the example of our master. He says, very truly I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. Now, obviously, slaves occupied a lesser role, a more inferior role than that of their masters, and messengers occupied a more inferior role than that of those who sent them. Now, it's important to point out that Jesus was contrasting roles, not essential worth, okay? His point was that no disciple of his should think it beneath him or her to serve others, since he... The Master and the center and the center would stoop down himself and wash the feet of his worst friends ever. That was his point. And in this example of our master, we see three things. First one is a model of humility. They called him master they called him lord that's the highest praise that they can give him but yet he humbled himself and brought him to brought himself to a position that was the lowest thing that they could possibly ever think of can you imagine how shameful it was for them to have him wash their feet he took on this model of humility then he took on a model of vulnerability I don't know about you, but it's hard for me to trust people. Especially when I know that they're probably going to stab me in the back. But for those of us who are disciples of Christ, for those of us who want to be resilient disciples, we need to trust God. And Follow this model of vulnerability that Christ had. Can you imagine if not one person in this sanctuary today was afraid of being vulnerable? Oh, my goodness. Look at the relationships that would grow out of it. Think of the healing that would come out of it. This model of vulnerability is countercultural to what we are today. But this is the example that our master gave us along with a model of affection and its intimate affection. I'm not talking about romantic affection. I'm talking about affection in which, wow, he was getting into the details and crevices of the lives of his disciples. Are you getting into the details of each other's lives? Are you allowing others to get into your business Not because they're thinking of themselves, but because they want you to grow closer to God. That's the approach that we need to be having together as a church. As disciples of Christ, we must imitate his example as a servant by choosing, to love one another despite our shortcomings. Can I talk to you guys heart to heart? You got no choice. I got the stage. So here's the thing. Shepherds, welcome back. I'm sure you had a wonderful retreat. I hope it was one in which it was encouraging and restful. But I'm going to put you on the spot. As shepherds, guess what? Christ wants us to wash the feet of the people in our house church. Hmm. Are you willing to wash the feet of everyone? Here's what it means to wash their feet. It's to get them to a point of saying I have received this wonderful gift of salvation from Jesus Christ. But then now, on a daily basis, I need to walk with him. Are you willing to wash their feet, their dirty stinky feet, on a daily basis to say, hey, here's some areas of your life that I think need to be worked on. Here's some areas that of your life where I think you need to grow in. Here's some areas of life where I think we can come alongside one another and make sure that all the dirt and the grime and the poop that you've stepped into this day will be removed. That means you're going to have to wash the feet of some of those in your house church who maybe I don't know out to get you who are gonna sell you out even to the point of you could get killed. Might not be physically, but it could be emotionally, could be spiritually, could be relationally, but they're out to get you. Are you willing to wash the feet of the Judas? in your house church? Are you willing to wash the feet of the Peters? These passionate feets, who are so loud, so vocal. But yet when it comes time to acknowledging who you are, they deny you? They say, I don't know that person. And they don't even support you? Are you willing to wash the feet of a house church member who calls you a liar? Who has no trust in you whatsoever? Especially, wait, I'm, a, I'm the shepherd. I need to lead you guys. Why don't you trust me? It's probably going to have a Thomas in there too. Or are you willing to even wash the feet of anyone in your house church whom you're going through some troubles too? but then they fall asleep on you and they disappoint you. Here's the thing. I put you on the spot because it's not just you. For those of you that are in a house church, you need to be praying for your shepherds. And you need to be praying for one another. And you need to be washing each other's feet alongside your shepherds. And when I say you, I'm talking about me as well. We all need to be washing each other's feet. So, I'm also going to talk to husbands and wives. Husbands, do you love your wives just as Christ loved the church? Wives, are you going to submit to your husbands in such a way that your husbands will be lifted up so that they will become the men of God they need to be? Wash each other's dirty feet. Despite the stanky nature of their feet and toes, going through all kinds of things, let me tell you this. For those of you who are thinking about marriage someday, it's not a Disney movie, okay? It's basically work. And it's work daily. But it's a beautiful work because marriage is something from God. And so when you bring it before God and you say, I'm going to love you just as Christ loves the church, I'm going to submit to you so that you can be lifted up, then it is a beautiful thing. And you know what? Your children will see that too. And my hope is that this next generation, starting today? If you're not married yet, I would hope that you would make a covenant that whatever future relationship you're going to be in, it is going to be one in which it is going to glorify God and you will commit to a lifelong union, union with one another. So I, jo- I joked around, I joke around a lot with. Uh, with folks, especially when I'm mentoring them. And then when I'll do, um, I don't know, um, marriage, uh, premarital counseling. So my sister, I'm going to embarrass her now. My sister and brother-in-law in the back. And I said this, you know what? You know that part where it said, till death do you part? Do you mean it? And usually I, tell, I, I, I look at straight the guys Dead in the eyes, like, yeah, you mean it, right? And they're like, yeah, okay, good. Because the only way you're going to separate is if you die. <laughs> right, Donald? Okay. But no, in all seriousness, this is a lifelong eternal covenant that you are to make before God. Let's make a change in this world. So, even the children, uh, as you're interacting with your parents, I know you get a lot of these generational and cultural differences. Wash each other's feet. Um, And so I want to be able to basically maybe leave you with a big thing here. In your house church discussions, you usually talk about highs and lows, right? So here's what I want you to do for your highs. I want you to ask, how did I feel loved this week? And how did I choose to love this week? So for your highs, share... What are the ways that you felt love during the week? And then also for your highs? what are the ways, and give all the glory to God, in which he gave you opportunities to love one another? And then on the lows, this is going to hurt because this is going to dig deep. This is going to mean you need to be vulnerable, but you need to share how was love lacking in my life this week? Can I admit to my house church members that I was not loved by them? And then here's an even harder one. How did I fail in choosing to love this week? You might even have to ask forgiveness from one of your house church members in the midst of this. So go through that discussion because here's the thing. It's not impossible because Christ said, these things I have spoken to you while remaining with you. But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and remind you of all that I said to you. In Acts 1, Jesus said, and you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. You're not going to do this alone. You've got the helper, and you've got the body of Christ. So, I implore you, choose to love. Because it's when you choose to love that the world then knows that we are Christ's disciples.